Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Uh, Ethan S. Berger is a Washington, D.C.-based international attorney and educator with a background in cybersecurity, transnational financial crime, and Russia, Russian legal matters. Mr. Berger earned his JD at Georgetown University Law Center, AB from Harvard University, and attained a certificate in cybersecurity strategy from Georgetown University. He'll be teaching a course about international law governing cyber operations at IWP during the spring 2020 semester. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you very much. Um, I should start by explaining I don't use PowerPoint slides like most people do. Most people use it simply as an outline, and I do it to save people having to write notes. And I'll highlight the important points and that will speed things up. The other thing is I will ask questions of you in the course of my talk, and I invite you to ask questions as well. That's more of an interactive thing than you might be used to. But when people think about mercenaries in terms of history, very often people think of the Napoleonic Wars where officers might have commanded forces from other countries. People think of the Thirty Years' War where Catholics were commanding Protestant forces and vice versa. And of course the American Revolution for us is probably the most notable where the Hessians from you know, Germany were fighting the uh, colonial forces who were mostly irregulars. And the concept between you know, the, the concept of mercenaries is that a small group of well-trained forces could do very well against unorganized irregular forces. And that's sort of where they have historically played a role and where they continue to play a role. Uh, I should probably mention that I am not deeply engaged in my own independent research on this topic. I basically monitor what's being written and sort of assume that the people who are dealing with this day to day will be sort of the policemen for the people who are publishing on the topic, since many of them have grants to do it and I don't. So anyway, I'll just share that with you for the people that I follow on this topic. And also it's important to highlight what we're not discussing here. The first is you know, Russia has a large number of private detective and investigative services, and they also have lots of you know, private security companies, you know, defending corporations, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to talk about that at all. Now, Article 47 of the Protocol of the Geneva Conventions specifically deals with the issue of mercenaries. And the idea of mercenaries is that they do not enjoy the basic rights of combatants. For example, they cannot demand to be treated like a POW under the Geneva Conventions. They can't surrender and expect not to be shot on the spot, you know, things like that. But 
perhaps most important is the concept of motivation for why they are doing this. And while the emphasis on motivation, which the media typically focuses on, is money, that actually in modern, modern times is less important. For example, there are ethnic Ukrainians from around the world, and as well as people who are not ethnically Ukrainian, who are fighting with Ukrainian national forces. Uh, you have the you know, Abraham Lincoln Brigade, who fought with the Republican forces during the Spanish Civil War. And lastly, you know, during Israel's you know, War of Independence, you had pilots from many different countries fight flying planes for Israel, which did not have an air force at the beginning of the battle. Now, in addition to the protocol under the Geneva Convention, there's a separate convention, which is called the UN Mercenary Convention of 1989. Uh, what's important to highlight are the countries that have not ratified it. You, know, you see China, France, India, Japan, Russia, the UK, and the United States. Why are they not ratified? These are the countries which tend to have uh, civilian forces acting in support of uniformed forces. And basically the rest of the convention have uh, provisions which are very similar to that found in the Geneva Convention. It specifies uh, more about the characteristics of the mercenaries. But once again, as you see under 1B, you don't see, but it's there, uh, it, there's a discussion of the idea of motivation being largely material, money getting paid more than forces who are part of the national force of the country. The Russian Criminal Code makes it illegal to act as a mercenary, either in foreign forces or even if they're forces which are organized within Russia. Uh, but my check of the Russian legal literature and stuff showed, suggests that only been about five or six people ever who have been convicted under the Russian criminal code. But we know from going through either newspaper articles and the literature which I showed to you earlier, there are many, many Russian nationals serving with foreign private military uh, service uh, corporations or private service contractors. I mean, both in terms of operational things as well as in terms of um, supplying weapons, delivering weapons to people all over the world. Some of these people might be labeled international criminals under various conventions, and some may fall through the cracks. But the participation by a mercenary in armed conflicts or hostilities will always be you know, punished under the Russian Criminal Code, assuming that there would be the will. But now we'll do some taxonomy. Now, these lines on their surface may seem genuine, but there's, they're, in practice they're not. You have first the private military service corporations, which are providing armed operational support on conflicts, such as logistical and training support for operational campaigns and military advisory missions. And very often the word service is, is dropped from that label, so it, it comes out as PMC, as 
and you know, see with the American forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of them fall into that first category. Then you have organizations that primarily provide semi-passive protective services, such as defending you know, natural resource type things, uh, mines, oil rigs, factories, this type of thing. And then the last group, which are private military groups, which are basically like private armies. And they lack a legal status. And that is, they have not been organized as a corporation under any country's domestic legislation. There is what's called the International Code of Conduct for Private Sector Service Providers, PSSP, which outlines the responsibilities of these entities in terms of what they can do and cannot do. And generally, entities that sign on to uh, the Code of Conduct basically agree to observe the international law of armed conflict, act in consistent manner with UN, UN orders, conventions, etc. Uh, not hire or enter into contractual relations with parties that are violating those types of things, etc. Uh, and they're also, if they sign on to it, they have the expectation that they will be treated as civilians in the event that they are you know, captured in a conflict. Now, these are here are some illustrative norms that are expected to be followed in the course of conflict. You know, the idea is that they will not knowingly, I mentioned this before, not knowingly enter into contracts where performance would directly and materially conflict with the, with the principles of the code, uh, that, they, that the people who are serving in these entities will comply with international law and international human rights law. You know, that's a very, very important thing uh, in terms of you know, conflicts, for example, in the Caucasus, where you had large numbers of Russian irregular forces supporting the MVD forces against the Georgian forces and the Ossetian forces, etc. Uh, and the, they will not act contrary to UN sanctions that are already in place. Uh, and that they will report wrongdoing up the ladder, not only to their supervisors, but to the competent authorities in the country in which the wrongful act, act took place. Now, the International Code of Conduct for private security providers have sort of three aspects. The first is the certification process. The other being that an entity which has signed on to the code of conduct will agree to initially, ab initio, go through a certification process so that, you know, they, that the certification body is convinced that the people who are serving with that unit, with that organization, understand what their obligations are. And this will be sort of on an ongoing basis and the certification body will issue what's called a recognition statement, saying that basically 
that entity will comply with the expected norms. Then the next thing is ongoing monitoring. And you know, this is sort of two things. One is the organization itself is expected to monitor the behavior of its own personnel. And also, they have basically agreed to comply with applicable uh, legislation norms within the country in which they are serving. So basically, you have a whistleblowing you know, situation which on paper exists, and emphasis the word on paper. Uh, and the last thing is complaints, and not only is it a question of self-policing, but it's a question of having to respond to complaints which are filed against organizations which are accused of not complying with international codes of conduct. Very often, these complaints will be filed by international human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch, Doctors Without Borders, you know, the, the typical human rights NGOs that you're probably familiar with, you know, who are reporting in country, uh, etc. And if you go to the websites of things like Human Rights Watch, you will see references to the International Code of Conduct for private security providers. And they take that role very seriously. In the United States, perhaps the best known uh, co private contractor involved in military type things is you know, Blackwater, which has since been renamed, and I won't get into you know, what has happened recently with respect to President Trump, etc. But uh, once again, the lines between what the personnel of these types of organizations are supposed to be engaged in, and in fact what they do, are very fluid. But very often the countries which use them have absolutely no desire to police them. And these are probably the most known organizations which fall under the PMSC or the PSC, you know, labels. You know, what was White World is like 14th. OMK is like an organization that follows, you know, this area. And these are the, the entities that enlisted. You know, for me, you know, Benelcorp, GK, Sierra, CACI, DynCorp, and Aegis were the ones that I'm most familiar with in terms of just following the literature. Obviously, Blackwater I knew as well, but not all of them were that well known. And all these entities are, you know, established under, you know, the governing law where they're located, et cetera, they have corporate governance requirements, you know, et cetera. Most of them are probably privately owned privately held. Now, a little bit of history. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the first thing that started happening was that the internal police forces within, and I say forces plural, uh, were basically breaking down. They didn't have enough money to, to pay their personnel. At the same time, the Soviet armed forces were demobilizing their troops. So a lot of their troops did not have jobs. And so what started to happen was the major energy companies and the sort of 
other principal drivers of the Russian economy started having to recruit private military for forces, uh, private security forces, to do the types of work that they needed. At the same time, uh, people who would have sort of legal complaints, which they in the past might have relied on the economic crimes unit of the MVD, were discovering that the MVD just could not do the work. For example, I worked on a matter where there were several million dollars of sparkling wine stolen from a warehouse. And when I was dealing with the MVD in St. Petersburg, you know, we gave them all the information. I actually was in a meeting with Putin, which was, for me, very amusing. Uh, he didn't have any English at the time, and he was like flipping a pencil in his hand and catching it, not paying too much attention to what was being discussed. Uh, our client went through the official channels with MVD. Nothing was being done. Uh, they looked at hiring various you know, domestic detective companies to hire to try to find out what was going on. It turned out to be like an organized crime situation. And then, strangely enough, there were offers to settle the matter through the police so that the police had contacts with the organized crime people who had stolen the material and basically they wanted the whole thing to go away. And our client ended up taking money to to allow the whole thing going away because they didn't want to jeopardize uh, the physical well-being of their own personnel. So they were willing to write off the loss. Uh, in the Donbass region of Ukraine, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Chechnya, the MVD were very happy to take irregular forces, basically former uh, Russian forces who might have served in Afghanistan, had been regular forces elsewhere. Because basically, the more experienced uh, sort of junior officers or senior enlisted men had, had left. And so they were in a situation where they could pay these people more money and they basically would let them, you know, enrich themselves from their actions when they were you know, engaged in war crimes and whatnot. And so that, that became a very regular uh, thing in the caucus conflict. Um, there are also Russian, well, Russian I use kind of a sloppy term, but there are other foreign PM, PSMCs which are largely Russian staffed, like the Savannah Corp and Moran Security Group, which are organized, I think one's under Hong Kong law and the other one, I couldn't, it's probably an offshore island, maybe like Cyprus, whatever. Those are legal entities. But as you saw earlier, you know, Russian individuals, Russian nationals, could not be working for these companies where they qualify as mercenaries. And so once again, given the monitoring requirement for organizations which have signed on to the code, you know, there's a problem. These Slavonic Corp and Moran Security Group have not signed on to the code. It's worth noting. I went through the listings of all the entities, and it was not a large number, something like, I can't find it in my notes, but anyway, it was not a large number of private companies which signed on. You could probably guess the nationalities of the companies that signed on to the code. And it's different, keep in mind, the country that signed onto the code are not necessarily the same as the countries that signed onto 
the 1989 Convention on you know, Mercenaries, dealing with mercenaries, so that you could be a your country could be a member of the code, but not be a member of the more recent convention, which is the follow-up to the Geneva Convention. And also worth noting that within the Russian state Duma, you know, there's been discussions about trying to create a legal framework for Russia to be able to have their own, you know, PM legal entities which are engaged as, you know, private military service providers. But this, for whatever reason, you know, is not advancing. And there are forces. One of the reasons it's not advancing, perhaps, are the, the people who are making a lot of money off the situation. And that legalizing the whole thing means that they would be audited. And so having the things offshore may be better for uh, the entities, or the owners of the entities that are getting money off of the situation. But if you go on the web, you discover there are you know, various entities, like this is one called Rush Corp International Limited, established under Eng English law. You, know, you see who their beneficial owners are. You have a Brit being the first one, then you have someone who looks like he's probably a Russian by looking at his name. And they are filing their annual reports like any other corporation. I really don't know what they're engaged in on a big you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. If you look at what the industry codes are, you know, it doesn't really reveal too much, but they are keeping their accounts current, you know, with Company House in the UK. In the United States, just by checking the web, you know, there's a thing called Global Guardian Russia Securities Corp, which is based actually in a building, which I worked at many years ago, and they are engaged in all types of activities, which at first glance, would not seem to qualify as activities comparable to that undertaken by mercenaries. It's more of like a you know, James Bondish or you know, private security police type operation. But I would guess that as one has conversations you know, with the individuals that work there, they're very likely to learn of people they may want to speak to meet their own needs, should their needs be more along the lines of traditional mercenaries. This is just a list or showing of some of the best known private military companies. And this runs the range of all the foreign legal entities as well as some of those entities which are not fully uh, formed as a legal entity. You know, I note that there's imprecise nomenclature in terms of what I showed you before, you know, back here. It's sort of the international taxonomy, which is accepted. But in practice, you know, people don't follow it. And if you read the academic literature, they're all mixing terms. Uh, you see the term PNC all over the place. If you look at newspapers, you know, you know it's, it's the same type of thing. So you really have to, when analyzing this thing, know what you're looking at and you know, why the, the method of organization was selected. Uh, this diagram I thought was kind of interesting 
you know, it sort of shows the Wagner group with no lines coming directly to them, it's sort of like operating in, in an environment with no direct uh, accountability, which is really, from reading the literature, the way you may come out. And you, know, you see different things, you know, some entities, some names. There's, and I'll get more to this, but like Internet Research Agency was you know, established apparently by Prigozhin, which may or may not have been under the auspices of Wagner Group. I tend to think it's not. Anyway, you, you'll see how that works as we go. And there are really two views of what the Wagner Group is. There's one view that Prigozhin largely self-financed this and that he is able to negotiate deals, basically business opportunities for himself, and then carry them out with you know, Mr. Putin's blessing. Uh, a lot of the money that is coming into him is believed to be the result of uh, providing security services to Russian uh, energy joint ventures overseas. The alternative view is basically that the general staff, you know, basically use it as their permanent mercenary force. And while they don't necessarily have it as like a line item in their budget, they're basically awarding contracts to the Wagner Group to do things. So that the Wagner Group is not in an eat and kill situation, you know, eat what you kill situation like, like a law firm you know, generating their own business. They're basically the business they have has already been predetermined by the GRU or other parts of the Russian hierarchy. But you know, one thing you'll see over and over and over in the literature is the whole idea of the Kremlin seeking plausible deniability you know, for what they're doing. That's one of the reasons, arguably, that they're using the Wagner Group. But it also introduces other issues. One is, like, who are these people? And you know, once again, these people are you know, Russian military veterans you know, who are you know, well-paid. The question is, how reliable are they you know, in combat? Uh, are they disciplined? Uh, their numbers that people throw out of three to five thousand, but those numbers, you, know, you see that number as being the number just in Ukraine alone or just Syria alone, it's inherently unreliable, the data, you know, both in the serious academic literature as well as you know, the online literature and newspaper type things. Uh, the question is where do they get their weapons? The Wagner Group, you know, once again, the information out there is inconsistent. Uh, another issue has to do with what does the Russian government do when something like the Wagner Group takes heavy casualties? I mean, it has political consequences within Russia. Are they going to walk away from it? And you may recall that at one point, uh, U.S. Uh, forces engaged them, and that created an issue. And the, and the United States has to think, well, what are the consequences of us going against either a private entity whose personnel is largely Russian or going against, which, which is a legal entity, or simply a group composed of Russian personnel fighting with Russian weapons? What is the likelihood of escalation where the Russian government, what's the Russian government going to do? 
Some people have suggested that the discussion of the Wagner group is just kind of silly. That the, West, the Wagner group is simply a designation of Russian forces carrying out a particular mission. And that all this discussion is kind of, you know, not advancing the ball at all. Other issues which you know, come up has to do with when you have units which are largely you know, foreign legal entities, which are largely staffed with Russian personnel, do those companies have free hand to do whatever they want? Do they have to get approval from the Kremlin before they carry out particular things? Uh, that is an issue of control, which people just speculate about and is really no one on a classified level who could share much insight. But one of the advantages, of course, of using these private entities, and of course, the key word, if you look back at the taxonomy, the first word is private. The idea is that it's not government. You're trying to sell the idea that the Russian government has no responsibility for it in terms of control. I mean, they may have uh, to deal with the consequences, but they don't have control as if it were a part of the Russian military establishment. This map just shows you some of the places that they're active. And you know, if you want to look at this, the slides will be on the website for IWP. Uh, so you can look at the description of what types of things that they're involved with. Once again, that's the same type of thing where it was Ukraine, Central African Republic, Libya. And most of these involvements are in connection with natural resources, with the exception of Ukraine, where obviously, you know, it has a geopolitical um, implication, which is not natural resource connected primarily. Now, there are two organizations which have looked at this topic more systematic, systematically. One is the New America Foundation, Arizona State University, and you know, they you know, won't take you through this too much, but they're focusing largely on the idea of this being proxy wars. The idea is that Russian PMGs are designed for strategic deception and that they benefit from falling within the legal loopholes that exist. And this just goes into the origin, the origin of PMGs. But I thought the most interesting thing was done by Nathaniel Reynolds, who's with you know, Carnegie. And his idea is that you have to impose a political cost on Russia for using these forces, and all, both publicly as well as making them aware of the legal complexities if they rely on them in terms of the whole escalation and control issue. And this just outlines some of the arguments that should be made, the idea that the Wagner Group is not a real PMSC or PSC, uh, that Russia and Wagner is not abiding by international legal standards and there'll be consequences, and that it simply is risky and will 
damage the Russians, Russia's reputation, etc. Uh, this is a good illustration. Uh, the idea of the Wagner group being used as cannon fodder in Syria. And you see a comparison of where the number of deaths in Syria in 2017 for the Wagner group was estimated 200, and the official Russian military, 19. So obviously, someone in a decision-making position is willing to deploy these people in probably risky missions because they really don't think that they will be paying a domestic political price. It also could be argued that maybe the Wagner group personnel are just not that capable compared to the regular Russian forces. Okay, I'll just very quickly go over these questions and then I'll ask your questions from you. But the first question is, why do you even know who the Wagner group is? I mean, it's a lot of hype. I mean, it's referred to often in the newspapers. Do you think the value of plausible deniability is oversold when everyone's aware of the Lexus between the Wagner group and the Kremlin? How useful is it really in terms of carrying out the operations? Most, because they're really only useful when they can flip the tide of battle. Clearly, in Syria, they really didn't do that. Clearly, in Ukraine, the border, I mean, the, where the lines are right now are static. Uh, so, and Libya things have not turned out the way they hoped. So, if you look at case by case, Situations, they've not been as effective as a lot of people might think reading the newspapers. Uh, then the question is, are people who are working for these private entities, how concerned are they that they do not enjoy Geneva Convention protections? Now, if they are, if people are captured, captured by, you know, say, a European country in a situation that they would like the Geneva Convention, it might be one thing, but what happens if they're captured by the Kurds, who may not feel that they can handle more POWs, or let's say it's a civil war type situation like in Libya, let's say it's in Sudan, you know, it, it could create major problems. Uh, the question is, what types of restrictions should governments place on their own PMSCs or PSCs? Should governments be doing more Police and how so is that politically possible? Um, the last, and that's pretty much it. The last two are from self-explanatory. So anyway, that's it. I'm here for questions. I hope I have. Uh, returning to the sparkling wine, the negotiation. What did the people who stole it? pay as a percentage of what it was worth? About 20 cents on the dollar. And was that considered a pretty good deal? Better than nothing or par for the course? Better than nothing. Yeah. I mean, what had happened, if you want more of the details, it was kind of fascinating at yeah. the time. Uh, what had happened was uh, our client had entered into a warehouse contract mm -hmm. 
And so the sparkling wine was placed in the warehouse. Then what happened was an organized crime group that had connections with the warehouse moved it to another warehouse with the idea that they were going to renegotiate their contract. But what happened was there was a sort of internal fight within the organized crime group. And so suddenly the wine is being sold all over Russia. And so probably what happened was someone in the organized crime or contacted contact within the police and said, look, we want this to go away. Your client knows it's over, so we'll get you some money. God knows how the money transfer. We were not involved with that. The funniest thing about it to me was after the meeting was over, I walked out. Well, the last thing I put this said. This is a meeting that Putin was yeah, in? Yeah, I was in a meeting with two sort of operational people with the MVD, Putin, who was just then in charge of the Committee for Foreign Economic Relations. Uh, I was with a Russian lawyer who I had worked with for many years. And uh, he's, he's after he didn't say a single word. At the very end, he said, well, what has happened has happened, and I can't do a thing. But in the future, if you need warehousing services, come direct, directly to me. So as I was walking out, I said to Yelena Barkhnovska, I said, look, there are two things. Is it that he is getting paid directly for this? Or do you think he's trying to earn goodwill? She goes, look, it's, it's the latter. There's not enough money involved for him to take the political risk to take money from an organized crime group because it will service, potentially. Fascinating. But he didn't write 20% on the piece of paper. <laughs> no, no, there was no receipt. <laughs> In your monitoring of this topic, how, how do you think, what is the long-term viability of utilizing these mercenaries for Russia? Uh, it looks like they're operating about six or seven countries that you had up on the board, three of which are ongoing conflicts. What's the long, it's got to be a, a small pool of people they could, they could pull from former Spetsnaz operators and things like that. Any sense of, is this a long-term viability they can keep doing if, if conflict spread in, say, Venezuela or other countries that Russia's involved with, or are they getting close to being tapped out? Uh, to be honest, I really have not looked at the demographics of the Russian military. If you look at their active operations, I mean, they're, they're more in the past. I mean, they tend not to be so involved. But then again, they have the technical skills that even if they have not been in combat and they've gone through, say, you know, six, eight years in uniform, that they'll be better than perhaps the local people in dealing with new technology. So you know, it's really anyone's guess. I mean, there are a number of books that have been published by you know, Heritage Foundation. Seth Blank looks at this. Uh, and there are a lot of books which are analyzing you know, the Russian military. And you, you can look in that direction. Hi. Um, I have a question regarding one of the uh, private military companies that was on your board earlier. Um, you had mentioned it looked like it was under Name. So I was wondering if that's a common thing where the names change, where it's like harder to identify what the companies are, just tracking them down. Well, in this case, you know, this was Blackwater Region yeah. through two rebrandings. Uh, you know, complex corporate structures uh, in this area are common. You know, the idea that you would set one subsidiary, you know, and then that would establish a whole you know, company. 
in terms of that part of the trace. Uh, you may also want to plan your business approach to take advantage of the national tax treaties so that uh, while I haven't really studied like, the major American companies in terms of their annual reports and things like that, it'd be an interesting exercise to go through. You know, if you're looking for a research project, it would be a, an interesting thing to do. You see how many subsidiaries they have, how many branches they operate, instead of what the extent of their disclosure is. Some of these, as I said, are, are, I think CACI is publicly traded. I'm not sure about I think Vinal is publicly traded as well. Uh, you mentioned that Rick is there a link or a legal distinction in the national law between these groups and, say, ununiformed citizen partisans, civilian partisans, or terrorists? Uh, ununiformed combatants will be viewed as terrorists by the opposition, will be shot on sight typically, or can be shot on sight. Does that answer your question? I guess, so mercenaries can't be shot on site? No, they can. They can. Mercenaries... But they are uniform. Well, yeah, they can be uniform, but if they're not... They might be uniformed in the uniform of the forces that they're supporting, but they are not regarded as personnel of that country. Otherwise, when there are, say, Wagner Group people in eastern Ukraine, and uh, they're captured, they're not entitled to the same rights as someone in the regular you know, Russian military. So they can be as terrorists? Yeah. Okay, so I, I mean, not... Well, in, in theory, yes, in theory they could do that, but the question is, would they want to do that? Because they, they may be much more valuable as hostages for exchanges or for gathering intelligence. Well, as I said, Reynolds you know, tries to address that guy Carnegie, and his thing is like the more disclosure and sharing the information publicly is, is good. Pressuring of governments who have used these types of private military forces in the past is good. Uh, you know, that's sort of you know, the idea of naming and shaming. Perhaps even the using of uh, financial sanctions against you know, companies which, countries which use these companies. Could you elaborate on the uh, Bruce Corps International I just found them on the web, and I, and I just sort of was, was struck by that. Oh, is it by their name? Like, well, yeah, what? exactly. Like, oh, you're you're just speculating that there might be. Yeah, I just went to the web and I looked at their website, okay. and you know, it was just open source information. I think. I mean, when I lived in, I was working in Australia, and uh, I used to pass like every day uh, a building for a company called Roos Mining, <laughs> you know. And uh, the Russians were getting incredibly active or interested in the Australian natural resource sector. 
And I remember mentioning that to someone in the Australian Federal Police as an example for something that they should be at least aware of. Yes. <laughs> so, so Blues Corp is by the, kind of by the name? Here. Yeah, I mean, you would be surprised how uncreative some people are. Usually that they, they take, I mean, if you follow like Russian organized crime and things like that, they use very generic names, especially in the money laundering area. You know, they do it, but the advantage of having a name like that is they'll attract attention from uh, perhaps people that will not have such great expertise in that area to make the connections. Hi, uh, you spoke a bit about uh, how the Yeah, one, one of the things is that typically they're looking for countries where the political leadership is unable to protect their natural resource sector from either separatists or basically people trying to overthrow them or organized crime. And so what happens is uh, the Russians, either directly through their military attaché's office or through their foreign ministry sort of, you know, discusses their needs for technical assistance. And sometimes what happens is the referral will go to like a private entity as opposed to a public entity because the Russian government typically can't act as fast. And so, you know, I have one graphic which tries to illustrate this sort of in a silly way. You know, if you look at things like the technology for security, you know, it's, it's changing like every three to six months. And a private company you know, could purchase this thing and install it and have people who are at the leading edge of how it's used to defend uh, sites probably be able to operate much faster than the Russian military, which would have a slower procurement process. Because um, like a private overseas entity could probably acquire the equipment faster than the Russians. The Russians probably couldn't buy it directly from the United States or Britain or Israel or whatever, whereas the, the, one of these companies, either directly or through a shell company or through a shell company, could probably buy it. Also, if they are not properly disclosing the end user, there, you know, there are issues there as well. Uh, what typically happens is, you know, if you remember like the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, everything starts with economics and, and aid to regimes that are uh, not totally confident in their ability to stay in power. And then like Russian influence follows the economic uh, relationship. But, you know, so much of the scenarios that people speculate about are only really uh, reasonable if there's like, you know, major conflict. And so, uh, you know, of, of course, if, you know, Russia is supporting you know, separatists, 
in one country having you know, a friend country next door is useful. But if you look you know, there, you have Libya, it's, it's nowhere near Central African Republic, it's nowhere near Mozambique, you know, so that you know, each of those countries is sort of isolated. So it's really economic factors which are driving uh, the Russians and these private companies. Anybody else? Okay, well, thank you very much for your attention. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. As I said, IWP will be putting this on their website. And uh, if you have any questions, just email me. I'll be glad to respond. And have a good winter break.